All right, well, to quickly review where we have been the last few weeks, we have been in this series, The Beginning in the End, and we're studying the book of Revelation and reminding ourselves that while Revelation is filled with trouble, Revelation isn't about the trouble. Revelation is ultimately about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us and the fact that he's victorious from beginning to end. He's on the throne from beginning to end. Here's the way we've said it, that our God is the beginning before our beginning, and he's the one standing supreme after our world's end. He's the beginning before our beginning, and he's the one standing supreme after our old our world ends, and he is in control right now. And that's true on a cosmic scale and a historic scale, but it's also true on a personal scale in every single life that God was on the throne before you and God will be on the throne after you and he is on the throne every moment of your life. And here's a few key truths that we have uh, that we've observed from Revelation the last two weeks. Number one, that while life is full of trouble and the end of the world will be full of trouble, God can be trusted in our trouble and with our trouble because his intention is and always has been our redemption, to make us new, to bring us back to him, to bring us back to a place where we're in a relationship with him and he can restore everything about us. He can be trusted with our trouble. He can be trusted in our trouble. He can even be trusted in the trouble that he causes because his intention is and always has been our redemption. And last week, we looked at the idea that there always has been and will always be until the end forces that stand opposed to your faith and trust in Jesus and the things that God wants to do in our world and through your life and in your life, that there will be people standing opposed to that. And last week we told you that in the face of every opposition, we are always confronted with the question, where does your allegiance lie? That when you face opposition and when you face pressure, when you face persecution, the question is always this, where does your allegiance lie? Who has you? Who has you? Is Jesus your first priority? Is Jesus your final authority? Does Jesus have the first word and the last word in your life? Does Jesus have your allegiance? Or does something smaller than Jesus, something less than Jesus, have your allegiance? And so I I hope this has been a hopeful, helpful, encouraging, challenging series so far. And today, that's kind of where we've been. That's where we've been. Today, we're going to spend our time together discussing as we move toward the end of the book of Revelation, discussing something that's been known since Jesus left the earth as the blessed hope, which is the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. The blessed hope, the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. Now, Depending on how long you've been following Jesus or what churches you may have been a part of at some point along the way of your life, when I say second coming of Christ, what a lot of us hear is the word rapture, right? A lot of us hear the word rapture when we hear second coming of Christ. And if you haven't been around church for all that long, when you hear the word rapture, you hear, you go, what church? Now, interestingly enough, I already kind of played this card last week, so I can't play it again, but let me ask this question that helps us to understand something about this important, this important thing. Is the word rapture in the book of Revelation at all? The answer is no. The answer is no. So, that, so we think, well, that must be one of those words like where, where, where there's a different term for it and, 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 and we just don't see it or we translate it differently from, from the Greek, but it's, but, it's, but it's in there. And the answer to that is actually no. 
that we actually don't see the, the rapture, it, what we've come to describe and know as the rapture, we don't see it take place at all in the book of Revelation. But since so many of us hear rapture, when I say second coming, it's worth us spending some time discussing the rapture today. So to, to talk about the rapture, the, the idea of rapture, the, our word, the word rapture that we use, it would very literally translate to a snatching away, a seizing away, a, a removal of Jesus's followers from the earth up to heaven at some point near the end of the world. To find out where we get this idea, where this idea has come from in the, in the New Testament, this comes from a lot of different writers in, in a lot of different people who followed Jesus, even Jesus himself in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 17, I'm going to read a bunch of scripture here for, for a moment, some big long chunks. So here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see the day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. People will tell you, look, there's the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. It'll be unmistakable. But first, the Son of Man must suffer terribly and be rejected by this generation. When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out on the field must not return home. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. It says that night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken the other left. One will be snatched away, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, one will be snatched away, the other left. Then in 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote of, of, of this idea. In verse 13, he started this. He said, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. This, in other words, this is something we have received from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and, and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds, will be caught up, will be snatched away to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again wrote this, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. We'll be caught up. We'll be transformed into being like Jesus, to be in the presence of Jesus. Our earthly bodies will, 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 be, will be gone, and we'll be given new bodies, and we'll be with Jesus forever. And John, in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, he wrote this to one of the churches. He said, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon, that Jesus will return to protect and take and, and, and remove his people from, protect his people or remove his people from the tribulation that is to come. So these verses all point to an event that Christians have come to call the rapture, a moment in time where the church in the world near the end time, as well as all Christ followers who have died, will be snatched away, will be caught up from this earth, snatched 
away from the trouble, the trial, the persecution, and difficulty of this world to join Christ either in heaven or to rule on the earth. But that still doesn't tell us when it's going to happen, just like Jesus wanted. He said, no man knows the day or the hour, just like Jesus wanted, except that it will be in the end times. And it doesn't really give us an idea of when something like that would happen in relation to other events. And so to give a few theories that have been presented through the years as as people have tried to maybe piece things together and figure out when a rapture would happen in relation to the tribulation, in relation to the, 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 the actual second coming of Christ as we're going to talk about today. One theory is that it would be called a pre-tribulation rapture. In this view, the rapture comes before the events of the tribulation as God removes his people from the world so they don't endure any of the tribulation and judgment. This would actually, in, in a lot of people's view, would spark the beginning of the tribulation, that God will not pour out his judgment until his people are out of the world, and that many of the, the things that begin to happen, this is the spark, that when God's people are removed from the world, all of the, all of the rest of the world goes to work and, and unchecked by, by God's people, and, it's, and it, it turns the world horrible. One, another theory is a mid-tribulation rapture, that in this view, Jesus' followers would endure the first portion of tribulation where we talked about a few weeks ago, that God allows the world to experience our enemies strength and agenda unchecked, but before the intense persecution arises as the Antichrist forces demand worship and allegiance to the beast, God will remove his people from the world. And the difference between the tribulation and the great tribulation is, is, is the midpoint where, where God removes his followers from the world. The final, final theory is a post-tribulation rapture. In this view, Jesus will snatch away his people right before his triumphant return to rule and reign on the earth as he rules in heaven. In this view, Jesus' followers will endure the fullness of the trouble, the trials, and the persecution of the tribulation period before Jesus' ultimate return. Now, here's the thing about all of that. I believe the rapture is a reality that will one day come about. At the same time, as much as I would love to be certain about when it would come in an order of events, I know that there are smart, convincing, Bible-believing people on all sides and all views of all of that. But again, But again, more than John wanted to give us and more than Jesus wanted to give us and more than Paul wanted to give us history in advance, the point in these prophetic words and the point in beginning to talk about the future is not to let us know here's exactly when things will happen step by step by step by step by step but to make us aware of the realities that we need to be prepared for and to help us to become the people that we need to be in order to to experience the things that we may experience in the future. And so in light of all that, this serves a greater purpose. This makes us aware of something that will happen, and it should lead us to a few things. Number one, it should lead us to a state of preparedness. It should lead us to a state of preparedness where I live my life as if I want to be prepared that if Jesus were to return and rapture his church and remove his followers from the world any given moment, I want to be prepared. I want my life to be prepared for Jesus to find me faithful. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. So you too must keep watch. You must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. 
See, here's the thing. When I say I want to be prepared, I want to have a state of preparedness, I simply mean this. I want to be found faithful. I want to be found faithful. I want Jesus, whenever Jesus returns, that if Jesus were to return in my lifetime, that when Jesus looks at me, he would say, that man has been prepared. He has been faithful to me. He's been a faithful witness. He's lived a faithful life. His belief has stayed, has stayed steadfast and faithful in me. He is prepared for my return. That as much as I want to be a great preacher, and as much as I want to be a great pastor, and as much as I want to lead a great church, at the end of the day, when Jesus returns, that if this rapture thing were to happen in my lifetime, Jesus would not look and go, wow, that sermon that he preached on Sunday, that was great. Or his church service on Sunday, that was great. He's prepared. No, no, no. At the end of the day, what I have lived every moment off the stage matters more than what I preach. That I want to be a faithful follower. I want my life to demonstrate what Jesus has done in me. I want my life to demonstrate what Jesus has done through me. I want Jesus to do a lot through me that helps other people see Jesus in me. Like, I, like at the end of the day, Jesus, I want Jesus to find me faithful. That's what I mean when I say we should be in a state of preparedness. The second thing it should lead us towards is a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. That Again, that since we don't know a day or an hour, and we don't know when in an order of events something could happen, something like a rapture could happen, here's the question that I think many of us should be, be asking ourselves. Have I shared Jesus with everyone I know? that we would have a sense of urgency in our, in our willingness to share Jesus and to talk about Jesus and to let people know about the love of Jesus and the grace of God and the forgiveness that God has extended through Jesus. Have we shared that with everyone? Because at the end of the day, if Jesus were to come and, and rapture the church in our lifetime, there are some of us who would, be, who would be floating up to heaven and we would be looking at people who we have left behind and we're leaving them behind because we never told them about Jesus. I don't want to leave anyone behind. Anyone that I know, anyone that I love, anyone that I have a relationship with, anyone that I have influence, I want them to know the hope in Jesus so that one day their hope becomes sight in Jesus. That, where, that whenever Jesus comes, I want everyone I know and everyone I love and everyone I have a relationship with to be in the presence of Jesus with me. In other words, like if I'm floating, I want my wife floating, I want my kids floating, I want my church floating. If I'm floating, I want you floating with me, right? Like, Again, I know we, this is, you know, we can laugh about some of this, but this is really no laughing matter. That if I'm meeting Jesus in the sky, I want you meeting Jesus in, in, the, in the sky and everyone I know meeting Jesus in the sky at the same time. See, so many of us, when it comes to sharing Jesus, when it comes to what we would call evangelism, we, we, we have this idea that we're just waiting for the right time. We're waiting until we've built up enough relationship. We're waiting until the right, just the right moment. And at the end, end of the day, we, we live so much of our lives as if there's very little urgency. But in light of the fact that Jesus may just come back at any moment, may rapture his church at any given moment, and you will never have another moment. Some of us, we should live our lives and we should share Jesus with a lot more urgency than we currently do. So I just would remind us, the right time to introduce someone to Jesus is the earliest moment possible. That when you feel that thing in your heart going like, man, you know what, like, 
this, this is the moment. This is the, like, this is an opportunity. This is a window. This is a time for you to share Jesus that we would not sit and go like, well, I'm not sure if it's the right time. I'm not sure if it's the right moment. Like, I'm not sure if all the conditions are just perfect. No, the best moment to introduce someone to Jesus, the right time to introduce someone to Jesus is the earliest moment possible. To live with a sense of urgency, to share Jesus with a sense of urgency, not to be a jerk about Jesus and and throw Jesus at people with a sense of urgency, but to lovingly present the love and the grace and the mercy and the strength and the power of Jesus to someone that we care about as early as possible. This idea of the rapture, that Jesus will one day remove the church from the earth, whether it's before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, it should all make us live in a state where we want to be prepared because we want Jesus to find us as faithful witnesses and faithful followers. And part of that would be that we would live our lives with a sense of urgency, sharing Jesus as much and as often as possible with the people that we know and love and have any sort of influence with. Now, that's the rapture talk. Now, we actually get to talk about the actual second coming. This is one of those few portions of Revelation where I fully believe John is actually giving us an order of events. Despite all the symbolism and metaphor that we're still going to see, I believe here more than anywhere else, John gives us this will happen after these other events. There will be trial and trouble and tribulation. And during the trial and tribulation, the enemy of God and his forces will be unleashed and they will lead and rule on earth, causing more trouble and more tribulation than ever imagined, bringing more judgment on the world than ever imagined. And speaking of order, it's interesting to note in Revelation chapter 18, right before the passages that we're about to read today, in Revelation chapter 18, we're told of the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, or that the beast's kingdom will fall and will be plunged into darkness, will fall apart and will crumble apart. And that happens before Jesus's return. This is not a, ooh, it fell when Jesus returned. No, it fell before Jesus returned. It should serve as a reminder of something that we began to talk about last week, that when the world's ways are used to build what the world wants, what is built cannot and will not last. When the, when the world's ways are used to build what the world wants, it cannot and what is built cannot and will not last. In stark contrast to the kingdom that Jesus is about to bring and the, and the new heaven meets earth that God will introduce at the end of time, the kingdom built by the world using the ways and the methods of the world by the person who will embody all the deception and violence and corruption of the world builds a kingdom that rises to worldwide dominance and then falls apart all in a stretch of seven years. Which should be a reminder reminder for every single one of us. A life built by the world, by the methods of the world, using the ways the world world would want us to build our lives, pursuing the things of the world, ends up building life that cannot and will not last. Only when we build a life on the foundation of Jesus do we build a life that actually lasts and stands the test of time. But then after that, after the, after the kingdom of the beast falls apart in Revelation chapter 18, after that happens, at the end of the trouble, at the end of the tribulation, then Christ returns. Here's what we're told in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened. 
Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. This is a different white horse, as we talked about a few weeks ago. This is a different white horse than the white horse that rode out at the beginning of the tribulation. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written his title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. This is the return of Christ. This is the second coming. We see Jesus, the rider on a truly white horse, not a mother of pearl horse, not, a, not an eggshell horse. This is Jesus on a pure white horse. This is the return of Christ. This is the blessed hope of every believer since Jesus left the earth, that Jesus would return and Jesus does return. He is named Faithful and true. We are told he judges fairly, and for the first time in history, he will wage a truly righteous war. We are told he is ready and prepared for battle, and that with his mouth, he will defeat any opposition and anyone who stands opposed to the things of God, and that while his name is faithful and true, his title is King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So Jesus shows up, heaven opens, and Jesus is standing there. And in verse 19, we're told this, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped the statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. All of the forces of the enemy of God, all anti-Christ forces that the world can muster, are no match for the strength of heaven. I mean, I, I don't know if we, if we can really picture this and, and grab a hold of this. We're told in, early in Revelation that one of the armies that would go out in the middle of this tribulation time would be 200 million people strong. And, and like, I, like I, I looked it up, and then right now the largest military force in the world, I believe, has 2.4 million soldiers in it. So the largest force that the, that the world will accumulate, that the entire world will accumulate, will be 100 times larger than the current largest military force in the world. And we go, wow, that is so much, like who could possibly stand against that? God in heaven can stand opposed to that. God in heaven can overcome that. God in heaven is greater than that. See, sometimes I think we don't talk about this enough, but one of the attributes of God is that God is all-powerful. That God is all-powerful. He has all power. There is absolutely no limit to his strength and his power and his might. That God is able to meet every need because he is all-powerful. That God is able to overcome any sickness because he is all-powerful. He is greater than cancer. He is more powerful than cancer. He's more powerful than intestinal disease. He's more powerful than COVID. He is stronger than all of it. 
He's able to meet any need. He's greater than, than your financial need. He's greater than your, than your mental health need. He's greater than your physical. Like He is above and beyond all of that. And on any and every battlefield, whether the very real one that will exist at the end of time or the battlefield for your life and your soul and your attention and your devotion and where it's fought every day, God is all powerful. You could say it this way. There is nothing and no one on earth that can stand against the strength of our heavenly Father, which means whenever you face a battle, whenever you are, 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 are feeling overwhelmed, whenever you're like, you lean into the strength and the might of your heavenly Father. And then we pick it up in Revelation chapter 20, we're told this, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a, heavenly, a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while, which is like an interesting little detail. But we're told heaven ultimately defeats the complete unholy trinity as the dragon himself is captured and chained and imprisoned beginning what will be a 1000 year rule and reign by Christ on the earth not reigning in heaven above the earth but reigning on the earth without the influence of hell, of hell to deceive or to divide anyone and here's what we're told about that time Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, here's the thing about that. You read that like I read that, and you go, wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought you referred to this as the blessed hope. And what I just read, I mean, like, yeah, it seems pretty nice that Jesus comes back. But what's so hopeful about all that? Here's why this should actually fill us with incredible hope, why this is the blessed hope. When Jesus returns, the entirety of humanity will experience the goodness of heaven unfiltered and unmasked. Let me say it again. When Jesus returns, the entirety of humanity will experience the goodness of heaven unfiltered and unmasked for a thousand years. See, when Jesus comes again, he goes into battle, not against the world, but for the ultimate good of the world. He goes to battle to win a victory for the good of mankind for the for the, for the rest of eternity. When Jesus comes as judge, it will not be judgment to convict and to condemn, but judgment to make new and to bring healing because healing cannot come until he addresses the broken pieces and the broken people. And when Jesus comes as king, we will for the first time in the history of humanity be ruled by a king who loves the people of the world so much that he willingly laid down his life for the world. See, what, the reason this should fill us with hope is simply this. When Jesus comes again, the whole world will experience outwardly what we have experienced inwardly. That when I know in my own heart that Jesus is king, when he's the king of my heart, in that day, the king of my heart will be the king of the whole world. The king who has given me direction and given me wisdom and given me guidance and pointed in the right direction and said, go here. And when I go here, I understand that this is what's best for me and I walk with confidence. The whole world will experience that for a thousand 
years. No more trying to put the pieces together. No more trying to put the pieces together of what, like, what I experience inwardly when I put my trust in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, we'll see it clearly. Unveiled, unmasked, no filter, no mask. Like, boom, right before our eyes. What we have believed by faith will be made sight. It will be tangible. The goodness, all the goodness of heaven will be tangible here on the earth. And that goodness will come in four forms that were shown in Revelation and the teaching of Jesus. See, Jesus will come as the ruler, as the owner, as the victor, and as our judge. Let's talk about these a little bit. When he comes as the ruler, here's something we have to understand. A kingdom always reflects the king. A kingdom always reflects the king. That at every point in human history, every kingdom that has ever existed has reflected the strengths and the weaknesses of the king. This will also be true of Jesus' kingdom, except that Jesus has only strength and no weakness. He has only strength, no weakness. He'll be like Michael Scott interviewing for a job. You know, I guess one of my greatest weaknesses is that I love too much. You know, like, like the, but Jesus, like, Jesus will be only strength and no weakness. And the world will conform to Jesus's rule and Jesus's standard. For the first time in human history, we will have a king that cannot be corrupted, building a kingdom beyond corruption. For the first time in human history, we will have a king who is love personified, and he will build a world where real love is valued and actually possible. We'll have a king who humbly washed his followers' feet, and he will build a kingdom in a world where humble submission for the good of the other is the standard. The world will conform to the standard of Christ. And so a question for us here and now, as we look forward to that day and say, yes, there will be a day where the world will conform to the standard of Christ. Here's a question that I want to ask myself, and I hope maybe you would be willing to ask yourself. What part of your life still needs to conform to the standard of Jesus? What part of your life still needs to conform to the standard of Jesus? If, what we're gonna, if, if the blessed hope is, hope is that what we have experienced inwardly will be experienced outwardly, well, maybe, just maybe, I want to work in advance to make sure that my life doesn't have to conform on that day because it's been conforming to Jesus' standard every day from the time I met him until the day I meet him. That, like, that, that, I, that, that if I have to grow in love, I want to grow in love. If I need to grow in humility, I want to humble myself. If I, if, if I want to sin and, and be beyond corruption, I want to be beyond corruption today. That I want to make sure that my life lives up to the standard of Jesus here and now. He's the ruler Eventually, I want to make sure that he is the ruler of my heart and my mind and my life and my relationships, that what he says goes, and I live up to the standard that he set for me. When I say he's the owner, it means that we are stewards of everything that God has given to us. You are a steward, and one day you'll be accountable for everything that you did with everything that he gave. We're stewards of our world. We're stewards of the earth. We're stewards of our time, stewards of our body, stewards of our relationship, stewards of our gifting, stewards of our influence, stewards of our family, stewards of our finances. And on that day, when Jesus returns to the earth, he will ask every single one of us this question, what did you do with everything I gave you? What did you do with everything I gave you? This is something that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 13, starting verse 34. He said, The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. 
Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. The question will simply be, I entrusted you with this. What did you do with this? I gave you a gift. What did you do with it? I gave you finances. What did you do with it? I gave you time. What did you do with it? I gave you relationships. What did you do with them? And this is amazing. This is like that moment in school where you were given the questions on the test to study for the test. You get the questions in advance and you and I get to decide right now what our answer will be then. So here's the question we should all ask ourselves. What are you doing today with everything God has given you? Are you making the most of your time? Are you making the most of your influence? Are you making the most of your finances? Are you making the most of your resources? Are you making the most of of your family? Are you using your time to benefit others for the kingdom of God? Or are you wasting the things that God has given you? I want to be a faithful steward because one day the owner will return and he will keep me accountable and hold me accountable for what I did with everything he gave. He'll come as the ruler, as the owner. He'll come as the victor. That Jesus will win a victory for heaven and humanity in the last days. It will be the second victory for heaven and humanity that Jesus will have won. See, Jesus won a victory and sits on the throne of heaven as the victorious hero of heaven and earth. When Jesus comes again, Earth will look like heaven as Jesus will then sit on the throne on earth after winning a decisive victory. And so Jesus was victorious on the cross and at the grave. Jesus will be victorious in the end. And here's a question that I think some of us need to actually sit up and pay really close attention to. Is Jesus any less victorious at any point in between then? And the answer is no. Jesus is as victorious today as he was at the cross. He is as victorious today as he will be at, at the, on the last day. He is victorious and he won a victory for you at the cross. He is capable of winning any victory for you today and he will win a decisive victory in the future. Jesus is victorious every moment from the cross to the end of time. And so a question some of us need to ask is simply this. Why don't you live in the victory of your king? Why don't you live in? Why don't you walk in? Why don't you experience the victory of your king? Why do we live as if we've been defeated when we follow a victorious king? Why do we live facing so much despair when we follow a victorious king? Why do we live in a constant state of being downtrodden when we're following a victorious king, when our king has won and will win and is victorious every moment of every day in between? See, some of us, the best response to what we read today when we see Jesus as the victorious conqueror would be to remind ourselves that we follow him and we live in his victory. And while, yes, life has trouble, and while, yes, life has conflict, and while, yes, life is difficult, we live following the one who has won and will win and is capable of every victory that you will ever face. It's time for some of us to identify as victorious. And you think, well, no, 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 like, I'm I'm not victorious. I'm not there yet. Here's the thing. That's fine. Your identity has never been about who you are and what you're capable of. Your identity should be found in Christ and what he has done for you. And if he is victorious, so are you. He comes as the ruler, the owner, the victor, and finally he comes as the judge. And this is one that can incite some fear in us, but this should incite hope in us. Because he'll return as our judge 
and as for the very first time in history, as a perfect judge. A judge who doesn't have to know the law, a judge who is the law. A judge who upheld the law perfectly when he walked the earth. A judge who judges with perfect love. And as we end today, his judgment will revolve around a single question. Not what did you do with what I gave you, but what did you do with me? That we will one day stand face to face with our Savior, with our King, with, our, with, with, our, with the, uh, the, the victorious one. And we will also stand face to face with our Savior, asking the question, what did you do with me? What did you decide to do with me? I was like, did you accept my sacrifice for you? Did you accept the salvation that I won for you? Did you accept the, the work that I did for you because you couldn't do the work for you? Did you accept the grace that my heavenly Father gave to you through me? Did you decide to follow and trust and live for me? What did you do with me? See, that's the question as we end today. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? There is a day coming when the world will see and experience all of the goodness of heaven. And you can get a jump start by experiencing it now. By responding to Jesus' love and his grace and his mercy and his strength and receiving his power. And you can do that right now in a moment, this very moment. You can experience it now. You can experience the goodness of heaven right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to earn it. You just have to accept him and his free gift of love and his free gift of grace that will reconnect you to your heavenly father. See, that is the beginning found in the end. That is why at the end we find our beginning. That's why at the end, the thing that will ultimately matter is what did we do with the beginning point of faith? What did we do with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? If you have never made the decision to follow and to trust Jesus, I would encourage you to make that decision right now in your living room, in your bedroom, in your bathroom, in your apartment, wherever you find yourself, to make that decision right now because at the end, that's the beginning point that ultimately matters. So let's trust Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. Let's make a decision today to place our trust and our whole lives in the hands of the one who did for us what we can never do for us, what the world could never do for us, what only heaven could do for us when it came to reconnect us with our heavenly father. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, today I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you that we have this hope that one day you will return for us, that you will one day return for the good of the world, that the, that the world could be made new and could be brought healing, could be brought peace under your perfect rule and your perfect judgment and your perfect reign and your perfect ownership. But God, I also pray that you would help us with the knowledge of this to live a life in a state of preparedness where we want to be found faithful when you come. We want to be experiencing the goodness of heaven in our life and through our life and at work across our life. We want to be living in a state of preparedness. And God, we also want to live with a sense of urgency that we do not have forever to share you with the world around us, that we want as many people around us to experience your love and your goodness and the goodness that heaven has to offer here and now. We want as many people as we know to experience it. So God, help us to live with a heightened sense of urgency, ready and prepared to share you and to share your love and to share your grace and to share Jesus everywhere we go. 
So God, help us to do that. We look forward to the day when you will return. Help us to be found faithful. Help us to be urgently working on your behalf in the meantime. And in that moment, we want to see you and know you and experience and see with our eyes what we have believed in our hearts. We love you, God. Pray that you would give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. Give us courage to step out in faith and do what you've asked us to do. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.